Welcome to Remember, a podcast about building community. I'm Carla Salter. My guest for today's episode is author and consultant Peter Block. Peter has written a number of books, and I'll link to his website in the show notes, including Community, the Structure of Belonging, which I read recently and learned a lot from. The book is just part of Peter's community building work. He and two colleagues, John McKnight of the ABCD Institute and theologian Walter Bruggeman, have created the Common Good Fellowship to support folks who are looking to build community where they are. I'll provide a link to the Fellowship's website in the notes as well. I decided to read Peter's book because of the title, because I believe a sense of belonging is essential to building community. But I knew I was hooked when I read this paragraph on page two. One aspect of our fragmentation is the gaps between sectors of our cities and neighborhoods. Businesses, schools, social service organizations, churches, and government operate mostly in their own worlds. Each piece is working hard on its own purpose, but parallel effort added together does not make a community. Our communities are separated into silos. They are a collection of institutions and programs operating near one another, but not overlapping or touching. This is important to understand because it is dividedness that makes it so difficult to create a more positive or alternative future, especially in a culture that is more interested in independence than interdependence. The work is to overcome this fragmentation. That paragraph hit home for me because I feel this in my own life. I have a church community and a community through my kids' school and family and neighbors and old and new friends and institutions that I'm part of. Some of these communities overlap in some ways, but mostly it feels fragmented. What I love about Peter's book is that it doesn't just focus on our interactions. It tackles the cultural assumptions and practices that have created the fragmentation in the first place. It challenges common beliefs about what makes a leader and the most effective ways to bring about change. When I look around, I see a lot of people who want to make their communities better and who are working hard at it but our culture and existing structures and silos seem to nullify so much of that effort. The key to building the world we want to live in is finding a way to make our efforts at taking care of each other bear fruit. Community, the structure of belonging, provides important insights and practical steps to help us do that. So with that, my conversation with Peter Block. So just to set some context, what does community mean to you? Uh, community means to me a, a mixture. It's a place. It's a network of relationships. It's a set of habits of doing together. Mostly it means that we're interdependent. It's an answer to the self-made person, autonomous person that so dominates our national culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, and it's really... Uh, it's really to me about being connected and having an affection and a memory for a place. I love that's that. why I added the word belonging in the title of the book of community, mm-hmm. the structure of belonging. Mm-hmm. Thank you. So in your last chapter, I, it's funny, I'm going to start with your last chapter, but um, it's called the end of unnecessary suffering. And I feel like you bring up a subject that underpins the entire book which is the difference between human and political suffering. Right. 
Can you share a little bit about that distinction, the distinction you make there? Human suffering is uh, begins with a cry at the moment of birth. Mm -hmm. I mean, babies could laugh when they come out of the womb, but they don't but cry because mm -hmm. they know that there's a tragic dimension to life and loss, loneliness, uh, death, illness. All these things are part of being human. <clears throat> to be anxious, uh, to be uncertain. So this, without that, we'd be automatons. We would be uh, bots. Political suffering means that uh, it's it's about justice. The fact that there's so much poverty in the world, there's so such a diaspora of people not being able to be in their homes in the world. The fact that there's such you know, so many people incarcerated in the United States. These are all unnecessary. We have the means and the resources and the money and everything right. to end poverty. We can do that. And if we ended poverty, most of the other symptoms would go away. But we don't. We choose not to. We choose to service the poor, but we don't choose to end poverty. Mm -hmm. So your belief is that political suffering can be ended by by community, whereas human suffering is just sort of a natural condition that can't, is unchangeable. Correct. Okay. That, you know, to say ended by community makes it sound simplistic. Right. <laughs> I, would, I would say, though, we can imagine it, mm -hmm. and we can make it happen the moment we decide that's the point. Right. Now, to do that, we've got to, you know, give up the notions we have about the consumer culture and getting ahead and upward mobility and, and uh, shopping. One of the themes of your book is that the way we currently relate in this culture is focused on blame, retribution, and problem solving, which are patriarchal in nature. You argue that in order to build community, we instead need to focus on belonging, restoration, and gifts. Can you talk a little bit about how patriarchy affects community? Well, the, 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 the dominant narrative for uh, our culture is control is a good thing. Consistency, predictability, uh, control are valued. And so we, when we come together and organize ourselves, we do it in a pyramidal way, narrow at the top, wide at the bottom. Right. And, and once you decide that I'd rather have control and, and I'd rather not be surprised, well, it isolates us. It drives us apart. We, uh, we grow up in the first grade thinking I'm there to compete with these other little kids that I could be learning with. Yeah. And so the, the competition, all of that drives us apart. It isolates us. Uh, and it, it can be done by very well-meaning people. You know, there are no devils in this system. It's just we live within a narrative or a mindset that the point is to maintain control. Ultimately, that leads to violence. So another theme of the book, this part is the kind of, I feel like the meat of it and um, really interesting part is that uh, language, specifically conversation, creates community and really that it is the community. Can you just share more about this? Can you, can well, you say what all, you mean by all this? All change, all transformation is linguistic. <clears throat> so if I asked you, tell me your story. Well, you would have a story about your mother or father or lack of or brother or sister or this or that. And, uh, 
And so this becomes where you take your identity from, is the story that you've constructed to make sense of your life. Now, I like the idea that in Russia, even the past is unpredictable, hmm. which means that my story about myself is something I socially constructed to get meaning, which means I can change it anytime I want. And so uh, how, do we, how does change occur? Well, you and I start talking to different people than we're used to talking to. And we talk about different things than we're in the habit of talking about. And what's the habit of talking about? We usually talk about what's wrong. Mm-hmm. We talk about whose fault was it. When something happens in Seattle, the first thing, whose fault was it? How are we going to get it? Right. And so that's a retributive conversation, the dominant storyline from the news and the media and most of the social media mm-hmm. is, is uh, what's wrong? Who did it? How can we find them? How do we blame them? And that conversation doesn't take you anywhere. It doesn't prevent anything from happening next time. We have these funny ideas. Oh, let's set an example with this person. Nobody's watching. Right. Why set an example if the, if the room is empty? Right. It, you know, it, it just reinforces fear. I mean, so the, most cities have gotten safer in the last 10 years, and people are more afraid than ever. Mm-hmm. And so really the, the, the conversation of, that builds community is a conversation of, of possibility, conversation of honest dissent, a conversation of commitment, of, of gifts, a conversation where I show up with you with curiosity. Who are you? Instead of advice, why don't you? Mm-hmm. And so it's an argument against being helpful, basically, and knowing what's best for others. That's the that's the essence of retribution is that I know and you don't, I'm going to fix you. This is a sin against the poor. Yeah. As soon as we name somebody according to their average annual income, we've declared them as broken people. And we have industries developed to uh, fix these broken people. They're not broken people. They're our neighbors and our brothers and our sisters. I wanted to ask a little more about um, that chapter about language because you talk a lot about um, stories and focusing on the past and that stories of the past can limit community. Right. And I've always believed the exact exact opposite, that um, especially in this country um, where telling the truth, I feel like telling the truth about exploitation and suffering and all the things that have happened in our past is the only way to move forward. But instead you're saying it's actually the the wrong way to move forward. So can you, can you help me understand that? Can you help me understand why stories of the past limit community or hinder community? Well, they're both true. So I need to know the history of my people. I need to know the country. I need to know the suffering. I need to know about uh, the 400 years of slavery that we're still participating in. To me, those narratives are useful. Uh, But there's a parallel narrative about my place in that, my stance in that. And if I keep stuck on the fact that when I was 14, uh, my father died, if I keep stuck on the fact that three years ago you said something, or if I keep going over and over and repeating the fact that in, in Cincinnati, you know, the unemployment among African Americans is 50%, stating the problem doesn't fix it. Okay. And so at some point, 
you have to say, okay, I have a memory. I have been wounded and I have to honor that wound. But it's not the point. The point is now what do we want to create together? And it doesn't deny racism. It doesn't deny the political suffering. It just says that you and I have to decide whether we want to create an alternative future or do we want to just stay angry for the rest of our lives. Or and sort of carry that story into the future. So and, that and, I, and, it, and we get stuck in the story. <clears throat> I mean, everybody, if, if you look at the world and don't feel any rage, well, you're not looking. You're watching TV. Yeah. But you don't want to be owned by that rage. You want to channel that rage. And to channel the rage and to channel the suffering is to say, okay, look, now what do we want to create together? What's the possibility? What do we want from each other? Uh, what are our gifts? What are we good at? We, we, you know, most, most studies of poverty ask certain questions. And they ask you, uh, is your neighborhood dangerous? Well, as soon as I ask you if your neighborhood's dangerous, I've declared you unsafe. I've declared you as an unsafe person. So we have these, these attitudes through our questions that, that uh, define each other in a negative labeled way. And that's what the conversation can change. I'm going to only ask you now, what are you good at? What do you love to do? And you might want to tell me about your past and how hard it was, and I'll listen to you. But when you're finished telling me, I'm going to say, what else are you good at? Mm-hmm. What do you love to do? What are you willing to teach other people? That's the most beautiful question in the world, not how many years of schooling did you have or, you know, where'd you get that bump on your face? So that, yeah, and it feels like what you were talking about, about being curious instead of offering advice, that that's how you see the fullness and wholeness of a person by not being limited by the story about them or their past. Especially people you know really well or you thought you knew really well. Mm Because the truth is, uh, we're fundamentally uh, mysteries walking around like visible beings. Yeah. Thank you. So in Chapter 6, What It Means to Be a Citizen, you talk about the relationship between accountability and entitlement. And you invert some of our standard assumptions. For example, you say that children create parents and citizens create leaders. What does it mean to be a citizen? To be a citizen means to uh, act as if I own this place. This place is mine. And act as if I'm creating the world that I'm inhabiting, even the world that I'm not happy with. Citizenship means uh, being accountable for the well-being of the common good. What's gotten lost in our economically driven system, our free market, consumer culture, is the commons. You know, uh, we enclosed the commons in England in the 1600s, finally. And we've done the same thing. We're a country of private property, private industry, private uh, jails, private highways. Mm -hmm. We think the private sector uh, deserves uh, control. And so the real movement, the transformation is to reclaim the commons, to restore the common good, to take back the land and have common land to the benefit of all. Uh, And... This is what's happening slowly in the cooperative movements, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's land or housing or businesses. And so that's the, 
that's the point of community as a place where people care for the commons and care for the common good, which is a lost instinct in the American culture. That's why we're kicking people out. You know, and I'm not talking about leadership or, or uh, uh, politics. It's just that this country is willing now to turn its back on strangers. Yeah. Uh, we're afraid of the stranger. We're afraid of the other. Uh, which means we don't know the stranger. I heard a great quote the other day that says fear is caused uh, from separation from each other. That's why we're afraid. Nobody who lives among immigrants wants them to leave. Right. At one point in the book, you say that systems can provide service but not care. That really resonated with me for so many reasons. The same thing what you were talking earlier about how we label poor people. Um, and it actually reminded me of my experience as a foster parent and the disconnect between participating in a system that was really a system and it was not designed to see my child as an individual with my role as his mother and caregiver. And I don't see, I mean, it, it, it helped me see how much we need our communities to care for kids instead of having it be sort of an infrastructure, you know, the, the child welf welfare system. Though I don't really see, I don't see a future where we're going to get rid of our child welf welfare system. And so I'm wondering what are some ways we can build care into our existing systems? Well, it's, it's, uh, the category is, is associational life. Associational life means that uh, in a place we can come together and and say, how, what, what's going to make this place better? Well, we need a place for our kids in the afternoon. Well, let's figure out something to do with them in the afternoon. You know, we, we've outsourced raising our children to the schools. We've outsourced our health to the hospital and the healthcare system. Uh, some of our children we've outsourced to the welfare. And, uh, and, all that. and so we have to make those obsolete. I never argue against mm -hmm. systems, argue against, because the people that work in these social care systems are wonderful people. Mm -hmm. It's just that we in this neighborhood, in this place, can ask ourselves what would make this a more hospitable, welcoming place who's lonely in our neighborhood. Why don't you and I, right after this podcast, walk around our neighborhood mm -hmm. and knock on doors and say, uh, how you doing? How are you spending your afternoons? You experience loneliness at all, really. What do you like to do, really? And there are places doing that. Edmonton is an abundant community initiative that Howard Lawrence has put together. It does just this. He's got block connectors. I'm surprised Seattle isn't leading the way because he's leading everything else. <laughs> but uh, And so whatever we're concerned about, our youth, our elderly, our children, our health, our safety, our well-being, our happiness. Uh, first step is to say, well, who are the, those people among us, you know, a few blocks, neighborhood, and how do we uh, find out what people are good at and, and interchange these gifts and, uh, and have less lonely people among mm -hmm. us, less separated people among us, and then we'll have a safer place. Then our health will be better. I mean, all of that's knowable. If you look at schools, we call schools failing now, which is an awful thing to say, and which just means we're calling our children 
failures. And the only thing that explains low performance in school is average household income. Mm. So if I really cared about the learning capacity of, of America's children, I would stop racing to the top. Okay, I would stop all the testing and I would do full tilt. How do we help everybody uh, have control over their economic well being? Mm -hmm. Period. Yeah, I think so much of it is just about, like you said, supporting people, supporting people, and then you have fewer of these, quote, problems that we talk about so much. So we have to do it collectively. Yeah. It's not enough for you to be a foster parent mm -hmm. or to be a compassionate human being and say, who can I help move? We have to do it as a group. We have to organize collectively. We organized out of anger for years. And uh, protest and all of that has its use, but we need to also be organized out of affection. Mm -hmm. And the churches have a good chance of doing that. It's just they get distracted by their own internal affairs. Yeah. So you argue that community, this actually, this is a really good segue, because you argue that community transformation happens when citizens self-organize. But since one of our biggest obstacles to community is fragmentation, how can we avoid organizing only members of our own group or people we already know? Or how can we hope to even have others we don't know participate in our organizing? Right. So if you took those questions seriously, you, you would, uh, you, you're on the way. You know, uh, like-mindedness is unkind to community. It's unkind to justice and inclusion. Meetups of like-minded people keeps us isolated and separate. Mm. So you and I, if we lived on this block, would say, let's let's take these questions seriously. Who don't we know on this block? I'm just inviting them into a conversation. When we have gatherings, we only you know, break people into small groups. We say, don't sit with anybody you know. Right. You know, we kind of do this uh, accidentally sometimes at gatherings. We put name tags around with strangers. But every time we meet, whether it's a church or an association or a club, or a, you know, we could be out at a bar together and say, tonight, let's go meet seven new people and walk around the bar and say, hi, my name's Peter, and I don't usually don't talk to you, but what, what are you up to? And so the stranger is what builds community and uh, association by choice. And once a group of people, four, decide to do something in a neighborhood, everything's possible. And, and there are some programs rewarding that. There's a family independence initiative now that will put up a couple thousand dollars over a two-year period. If your family and three other families get together and do something to improve the neighborhood and document it, we'll give you money for it. Hmm. And so they're, they're in, giving an incentive for people to gain control of their communal lives. And when they do that, all kinds of good things happen. They make more money, they get healthier, they go back to school, they get their act together, just from cooperating with a little dango of somebody else giving a little structure to encourage that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm thinking, though, of, so a lot of times, well, Seattle is kind of an interesting case, because um, our city is becoming more and more just a playground for the rich just because yes. it's becoming so expensive. You do have some neighborhoods, many neighborhoods that are 
rapidly gentrifying or already gentrified, where you have most of the people on a block, maybe who are extremely wealthy. Um, and they don't ever interact with the people in the apartment building at the end of the block. Um, and they don't even really have any occasion to cross their path. That, that happens a lot here, parallel communities. And so to give people not only so the incentive to do so, but actually have the to have the organizing not look like here I am trying to help you. Do you do you know that do you understand? I know what exactly I mean? what you're saying. It's saying it perfectly. This is not about the, the wealthy helping. This is not about philanthropy. Right. And so I, how do we bring people together in an equal playing field? Yeah, exactly. The, yeah. We know how to do that. We just haven't decided. Mm-hmm. I know how to do that. Yeah. Have you ever facilitated a group? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you ever broken them into small groups? Yes. <laughs> I know. See, so we have the yeah. the methodology is not exactly difficult. The, the, the mindset, though, is that the wealthy are as, as deeply lonely, yeah, all right, and deeply off balance as the others, as the rest of us. Yes. And so it's not like what can they do for the apartment house at the block, and what can they do for themselves? How do you help the wealthy get connected to their children? A lot of the opioid addiction is from very well-off, intelligent, high-achieving people. A lot of the teen suicides are from well-off, high-achieving young people. So I figure that the issue of separation or being isolated or outsourcing a life, all of that isn't about class. Right. And so you and I would go in that block and we'd organize something. We'd have a party or we'd have a, a find out who's interested in gardening, who's interested in whatever. Mm-hmm. And we would knock on the doors of the wealthy people and say, we're well, doing something down here for an hour. Would you come down? Because uh, we need you. What are you good at? You're good at gardening. You're good at talking. You're good at good. We need you. And so we would start with five people and, and, and make sure that every gathering, every effort is made, that people who know each other the least are put together mm-hmm. and ask a series of questions. The book, ends with a series of questions that I have come to believe that if people had these conversations, their isolation and disconnection would disappear. Mm-hmm. If I ask you, what's the crossroads you're at at this stage of your life? And we talked about that for eight minutes. And you asked me the same. We would no longer think we were alone. We would no longer think we're crazy. And we would not think there's something wrong with us. What I thought was wrong with me turned out to be my humanity. So it's really a, it's a, us deciding together. You, that's why I say yes to these podcasts. Because the more we have these conversations, the more likely it is one person, one time, somewhere, might walk down the street to that person they thought was wealthy and say, hi, I'm your neighbor. Yeah. One of the early points you make is that in the current state of things, safety and prosperity in one town or neighborhood usually comes at the expense of another town or neighborhood. So we might think all is well, but we don't see sort of what's going on elsewhere. Um, How can we use 
our community building efforts to help rectify this? And you talked about this a little bit, but. Right. Well, Jim Keene said that. Now he's the mayor of uh, Palo Alto. He said, for every well-off neighborhood, some other neighborhood's paying the price. And it's true. And you go to some of these uh, golden cities like San Francisco or Seattle or Portland or New York or Boston, and and you've segregated them nicely because I can go to New York or San Francisco and think everybody's really well off and happy. Yeah. And it's beautiful. And Seattle's the same way. I can stand outside my hotel as long as I don't go to the, you know, Vancouver's the same way. Uh, But if you walk six blocks in the correct direction, you'll find out it's not true. Right. But there's a there's a there's an enormous amount of suffering even in these glamorous cities. They just push them out to the edge. Cincinnati, where I live, is interesting. It's, it's a checkerboard city, so I can't get out of my neighborhood. But I'm going through neighborhoods that are heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And so, acknowledging that means that we decide how do we begin projects and begin efforts about things we care about. And then we start inviting people across lines, across classes, across races. And it's not to talk about race or talk about class. It's to be together, engaged in making the place better. And uh, that uh, process is called building social capital. How much do you trust the people around you? Well, more than I used to. Mm -hmm. Do you do anything together to make the place better? more than we used to, well, that's building social capital. And it's got nothing to do with uh, intervention. You don't need a professional to do it. All professionals are fine. Uh, and then something shifts in my affection and memory for the place, like Wendell Berry talks about. He says, if you haven't committed yourself to a place, then you've lost your memory and you've lost your affection. So you're really... Uh, it has to be in a place, global community doesn't mean anything. Global awareness doesn't mean anything. It's almost a way of escaping my neighborhood. I'm a global citizen. Yes, you are. I'm glad that you care about these other cultures and countries and have friends in 12 nations. But you've got to walk outside your house and say it's something in walking distance. It is what's going to transform and, and recreate and give more meaning to my life than all of the uh, touchless things that I'm engaged in, uh, lovely as they are, you know, fascinating as they are, just like you and I now. Mm-hmm. Well, and and actually, it's it seems critically important, especially at this period of time and in this country, because so often, at least here in Seattle, there are many, many, many people who just got here. And don't have extended networks or intergenerational connections, and they, you know, their home is more like a, like a, a landing spot, a takeoff spot to to all the places they need to go. Maybe they, you know, travel every weekend, or um, they connect with the other people, a few other people they know, but they're they're not rooted in any way in their neighborhood. Right. And so often there's even. I mean, there there can be interest, but sometimes there isn't even interest in that. And so, like you said, there's there's this pervasive loneliness and lack of connection right. that, you know, you may care about your community and the world, but there is no actual community or connection to speak it's of. Not, it's yeah. not embodied. I mean, this is why, you know, the economy is, uh, the jobs have disappeared. 
And I think it's headed to a place where I'm not going to have the choice to go somewhere every weekend. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm going to have to uh, patch together a living, which mm-hmm. has some real value. You know, we, we have such a, we're so uh, consumption and uh, materialism and ambition minded that part of the loneliness is the cost of that ambition. If I leave town to go to work every week, that's my ambition that's driving me. I don't have to leave town. I can find ways to stay here. But, you know, even if I'm only here two days a week, well, why not make something of those two days? Right. Yeah. It's very possible. It's just that we're not, we don't think that way. That's what you're doing with these podcasts Mm -hmm. is trying to shift people's thinking and uh, bring them home again. I like that. So now I just want to know if there's anything else you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you. What I appreciate is that you you have not romanticized your community. Uh, most people from Seattle want to tell me how great it is. Yeah. Most people I know uh, who have money want to tell me how great their children are. And I... Anytime anybody declares victory, when there's so much going on that causes concern, it just seems uh, off to me. And uh, how, how, you, how do you how do you declare victory with with the amount of poverty and all the things that are happening? And so you're great there, but you're not you you're uh, turning that upside down, Carl. You're you're saying I'm going to connect people around real issues in my city and uh that's a, it's a wonderful thing to do thank you you're welcome